0: (laughs) Greetings, everyone. Welcome back to Y2K and Autobiography, the interview series. I'm very lucky right now. I was able to contact a senior person at Computer World. Computer World was where I published my first major article on the subject, Doomsday 2000. We might talk about that later. And Mary Fran Johnson was there at the time, news editor, controlling, talking, and, you know, deciding what was worthy of news and all the rest. And I've managed to get her for this Interview Not because she was technically involved with y two k she wasn 't but she was involved in a vital part of y two k which is the reporting of it, maintaining the story, telling the story of what was going on so without any further ado, Mary Fran thank you for being yes. here
1: well thanks very uh, thanks very much peter i certainly i, kn- I re- remember your name immediately i 'm not sure if we ever actually met in person or that I even interviewed you during the time, but I'm sure you talked with some of our reporters or editors over time at Computer World, but it's a uh, it's a pleasure to be here. And uh, the subject of Y2K is not the kind of contemporary fascination that it had all throughout the 90s now, but it certainly is a topic that has had a, a big impact on the lives and careers of probably every, IT leader, every CIO that I've ever met or talked to. It was a very big event in the world of uh, technology journalism as well.
0: What was your first introduction to it?
1: You know, you asked that question and I was trying to remember. I know that the very first mention of the Y2K problem was, it was reported to be in 1984 in a Computer World article and I, of course, I know about your 1993 when you wrote the Doomsday article about it, but I joined Computer World as a writer in 1989, and I was covering hardware, and I was uh, was assigned to Digital Equipment Corporation, and I wrote about mid-range computers, so probably my first discussions about Y2K would have been with Data center managers who were taking care of AS400s, the the famous IBM mid-range computer that was very dominant in the late 80s and into the 90s, and then by 1993, I was I had moved through the writing ranks and was the news editor uh, for 1993 through, through uh, 1999, and so I was mainly in a position of reading and editing a lot of stories about Y2K. And I I can't honestly tell you when I first noticed the term. It most likely would have been in 1989 when I joined and was a reporter because one of the things you do when you're a reporter at any publication, and I had come out of daily newspapers and this was my first introduction to the technology press. So I was asking a lot of what in retrospect probably sounded like dumb questions, but we always editors will always tell writers and reporters that there really are not any dumb questions. You have to keep pushing and asking until you find out the information that you need to have. So I'm sure that I asked people questions about it and it was from a from a reporting, especially a technology news and reporting perspective it was always a big story so it was a story in but it was a story that joined dozens of others um along the along the way And of course, by the late 90s, it was a dominant, such a dominant story in not just the technology press, but the business and the mainstream media as well, because it just, there was something inherently fascinating about, you know, the doomsday, end of the world kind of scenarios. That were going on so it it, it's it's hard to to say well when was the first moment you ever heard about it because it always seemed to be part of the environment of what we were if you were writing about technology during the 90s you were probably talking to people about it mentioning it asking them how they were dealing with the problem and what kind of budget um, attention was being paid to it. So it was, I don't want to say it was wallpaper because there were so many interesting stories going on. And the the thing that was kind of neat about Y2K was the story got better and more interesting as you went on through the decade. So in the early 90s, it was just kind of one of the past. But as we got to the late 90s, of course, it became quite, the, quite a dominating story.
0: As early as the mid nineteen seventies, people were pointing out that there was a year two thousand problem. the The term Y two K didn't come up until later. Uh, right. And when I handed in my article, and the editor I handed it to, I have the email, the, the letter in front of me. It wasn't an email; it was a letter back in the day uh, wow. from Lori Dix, and I sure. have the actual submission in front of me. The four Mm -hmm. titles that I had selected was Crisis in the Year 2000. Uh, That was one. Time and Dates Wait for No Man. Uh,
1: (laughs) The philosophical uh, approach there. Well, the
0: philosophical approach doesn't come till the next one. An hour destroys them. Seneca's quote. (laughs) And then these are the times... Those are my four titles. And then you guys came back with, no, 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 Peter, those, those aren't grabby enough. We, we need to do something, punch it up, punch it up. And you came back with Doomsday 2000.
1: Well, there you go. But well, this is why everybody needs editors, Peter.
0: <laughs> I've just... never had a title published. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've had articles, thousands of articles, but never a title. Okay, when it started... I mean, look, you mentioned that it was a fascinating story. I think part of the fascination came from the fact that it was so simple to understand. I mean, it was so simple, easy to describe. We use two digits rather than four. And that means when it gets to 2000, it'll represent it as zero, zero. And know, that was it, was
1: it. I mean, that was, was a the bad, problem in a nutshell. Kind of a math fix. Yeah. It was, well, the, techno- the, the fix that was involved in um, making the Y2 K problem go away. I think, as you say, from a, um, from a software development and just a technology perspective, it was a simple enough problem. I think what was fascinating about it was the incredible ripple effect that it had throughout the 90s because of, well, the expense involved in fixing it. And the as much as technology leaders and CIOs and data center managers tried to explain it to business people in a way that they would understand that it sounded trivial but was it going to be incredibly important at a certain moment in time it was just i think of that famous quote in the movie about it was such a failure to communicate you know it was rare for business leaders to get on board with anything to do with y2k except to be Annoyed by it and to be horrified by how much money it was costing to go back in and Fix, you know to climb back into the bowels of all those legacy systems because even in the 1990s They were legacy systems and some of them had gone back to the 1960s Um, So it was I think in a lot of ways it was a small technology problem, but it was a huge people and leadership and it was a political issue inside of a lot of companies. And it just, in a lot of ways, when you think about the way technology leadership has evolved over time, it probably set people back. There was a lot of career worry, and there was a lot of fear and loathing around what it was doing to someone's career. If they ended up being the person running the Y2K project, they would worry about what would happen to me afterwards, because it was, From a business perspective, it was incredibly unpopular, and it was very annoying, and it made business execs and CEOs suspicious and fearful about IT at a time when they should have been, I I like to say, they should have been more grateful about what we were avoiding and I know you and I are going to get into talking a little bit about the comparisons between what's happening now with the global pandemic. And um, it, it's it's just, I've always found it just personally to be very frustrating that IT leaders got such a bad rap uh, about the Y2K. They They should have been heroes to fix it, but it was, you know, in a lot of ways, I think chief security officers deal with the same issues even even now when they're trying to avoid all kinds of disastrous things happening but it's the absence of a bad thing happening that makes everybody suspicious that you know well maybe you were just making that up anyway so it was a it was a political business issue more probably than it was any kind of an interesting technology story in and of itself
0: their career concerns were well founded after Y2K occurred. In other words, after January the 1st, 2000, uh, the, the job consultants, the employment consultants, the resume makers were telling people, take Y2K off your resume. It does Yay. not mm-hmm. add, any, add any value. It is a detriment yeah. to you, and it will not help you find work. And I heard that story time and time again over the years, which...
1: And, yep, and I'll bet a lot of, a lot of uh, technology people heard similar stories from the resume people after the dot-com bust. Yeah, Because they may have gone on to be, you know, that might have been that they were a director-level IT executive, and then they went, and they were the CIO of some, let's say, pets.com, which was one of the very well-known dot-com blow-up disasters. It was not something you wanted to brag about. Um, and you could see about 10 years after the whole dot-com bust I think CIOs finally started putting it back in their resumes but they didn't say much about it you know I mean it was it it was it was an embarrassment to have been you learned a lot about business but um, you know (laughs) nobody wants to I guess nobody wants to be part of any kind of movement that is seen as a big failure or a big money sink or, you know, the Y2K. I, I've looked back at like some of the editorials and the things that I was writing about our coverage at the time, and we were so very hopeful. And oh, I, it seems foolishly optimistic now because I know that um, I wrote about the fact that, you know, in one of my editorials about how connections forged between IT and the business side have never been stronger. And I'm not, I'm not sure what I was smoking when I wrote that <laughs> um, because they were, I think they were stronger and there was a great deal of awareness, but I don't think that it was a lot of good spirit and feeling between them. You know, I think there was a lot of resentment on the business side that so much money had to be spent to fix something that essentially IT people were being blamed for. So and yeah. it's... Uh, so it was good to come to an end of the Y2K days, and we had some. Um, one of my uh, favorite CIOs in the world um, was Dick Hudson at uh, Global Marine. In fact, I spent um, Y2K the the um, evening, the tur- the turnover night, midnight on '99. I spent in uh, Dick's data center down in Houston, and he wrote an article for us afterwards that was, you know, very upbeat. And he was writing about, you know. Pat yourself on the back and we did, you know, we did such a great job. And, you know, he wrote, he said, the year 2000's here and so are we, the sky didn't fall, mankind continued to function. We did it, pat yourself on the back. And I I, I love the tone of that and I love the feeling behind it, but it wasn't, I don't think it was the way anybody felt outside the technology industry.
0: Agreed. How did, look, for the reader, some of the listeners have no idea who Computer World was at the time. Talk a little bit about the, the impact of the magazine itself on the IT mm-hmm. industry and the importance of it.
1: Yes, I was, um, Computer World was a, uh, it was the Bible of the growing technology industry um, founded in 1966 by Patrick McGovern who it was a family essentially the McGovern family owned um the publication for most of its existence it's only a few years ago that IDG the IDG was um uh, purchased by an, another entity but it was a family owned business and um Pat McGovern was one of uh, he was uh, he was a giant and he was he was a big guy he was like six foot five very very tall he was a, one of those CEOs that if I had to list my top three most impressive favorite CEO people in the world Pat McGovern would be number one on the list he was a wonderful support for journalists he had started Computer World. Um, and then the year later, he started International Data Corp. IDC, and he was very determined to be uh, to bring journalistic standards, kind of a New York Times level, Washington Post level um, attention to reporting on the technology industry. And for at least forty years of its existence. Um, Computer World was the best known and most read publication in the industry. And I, I still run into, I still all the time run into uh, chief information officers and leading executives in technology who tell me how they, they grew up reading Computer World. And, and that was what they, it, it was, you, you called it a magazine. It was originally um, a, a News Weekly. And so it was produced very much like a newspaper. You know, we had, you started on your story on Monday and by Wednesday evening, you were turning it in for editing on Thursday and then on Friday we would ship to the printer. And I know that I was, I was the news editor for uh, the, between 1993 and 99 and the, um, I'm sorry, 1996 and 99 and the. Um, intensity that went into producing that weekly issue was enormous I mean we had I had a staff of there was a a staff of 75 people in the editorial department we had at least 26 reporters um, assigned to different areas of the industry and it was this enormous I always thought it was quite beautiful, but I'm completely biased there. But it was a big broadsheet uh, magazine, and it just, every, you couldn't go into any CIO's or any IT executive's office without seeing copies of it laying around on the table, very much the way you would see the Wall Street Journal laying around on the CEO's desk. And it was enormously influential and it was in the the 90s all throughout the 90s was pretty much the 80s and 90s were really the heyday of technology publishing there was a tremendous amount of competition there were a number of other Publications, Information Week is one everyone will recognize. Um, PC Week was absolutely huge during that time. We were all in various levels of circulation wars with each other. Mm -hmm. And for a long time, we took great pride in the fact that Computer World was not a giveaway publication. You had to pay to get it. It was um, until we finally got to a point in the circulation wars and I can't remember when it was. It was probably sometime in the early 2000s when we started having people qualify to get it, where if you had a certain level of title and you filled out a long application form with all kinds of information about your company, then that would be a qualified circulation publication. Before that, uh, you paid to get Computer World. I mean, it was it was that important to people that were working in the technology field. and. It always, I came into computer world right out of 10 years in daily newspapers. And I was a little early on, I was a little astonished to find out that there was so much um, really solid, high integrity journalism going on in the tech industry. Because you tend to think that a publication that is, this is people, it always bothered me when people would refer to, you know, they talk about industry rags mm-hmm. and always this derisive kind of um Feeling that, oh, well, if you're a publication all about the retail industry, you know, you must be just writing things to make the advertisers happy and that sort of thing. And what was so engaging and so much to be admired from my journalist point of view about Computer World was how incredibly seriously we always took the issue of being real journalists. And advertisers had uh, absolutely no say in uh, anything that was published. And Pat McGovern was, as the CEO of IDG, International Data Group, he he was such a strong supporter. There was a, a time when uh, we tangled, and I was the executive editor, I think at that time, and we had tangled with one of the very big software companies. And there were a lot of front page stories being written about how they were essentially kind of, well, they were holding a lot of their mainframe user customers at gunpoint and charging them, you know, essentially outrageous maintenance fees and that sort of thing. And we wrote a lot about this, and the adver- and the company at the time, the tech vendor at the time, got absolutely furious and pulled all of its advertising, not just at Computer World U.S., but actually around the world. At one point, there were 55 different international country versions of Computer World. You talk to the editors at the time of Computer World Germany, or Computer World Sweden, or Computer World, um, we we were never in England, but we were everywhere else. And um, this particular angry tech vendor pulled all the advertising worldwide. I remember it, it was huge. I mean yeah. it was a very huge number. Probably, you know, maybe it was $90,000. I mean it was something that was just enormous and I remember my god the publisher was an absolute the, the 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 head of sales was an absolute wreck about what had happened. And I think probably fearful for that job at the time. And a lot of editors, I mean, if, if you weren't a publication with a lot of integrity, that would have been the end of the editor. They would have just thrown you out. But. What Pat McGovern did was he he was famous for something called rainbow memos where he basically sent you this he had a rainbow because he was a big believer that the best was yet to come and that You would get when you got a rainbow memo memo from the chairman of IDG you put it up in your cubicle it was a very impressive thing to have and Pat McGovern sent me as the editor of computer world at the time a rainbow memo congratulating us on doing such a good job for our users and mm-hmm. for our readers for the people that relied on computer world to bring them you know the best information they could about the technology industry he was he was demonstrably proud of the fact and he really didn't care about the fact that an advertiser went off in a huff and of course a few months later the same advertiser came back
0: of course and
1: they did. it was just so of course they did yes mm-hmm. and um it was, it, we were just, we just took it so very seriously. And uh, to this day, that that feeling about reporting truly on technology and not being influenced by advertisers, that holds true. Computerworld.com is still a wonderful provider of news and information for the technology field. And, and IDG is, is still out there. We're, none of us are as big as we were. You know, the publications all stopped printing and um but I, I still run into um cios and it people that were longtime readers of computer world and and they miss it and you know it's uh, but but don't we all you know we can yeah, all we look all back
0: do. We something
1: all do. in the 90s that that we really miss and wish was just the same and the industry has changed enormously in the last 20 years especially but um it's it's kind of hard to uh, it's hard to say too much about what a big deal and what an influential public publication computer World well was at the time because yeah at just... the
0: time at the time the doomsday article came out the subscription the circulation numbers i think were three hundred and sixty yes. thousand. i remember that because that was part of my decision to write there and i have something in front of me that may be of interest i have mm-hmm. my letter of acceptance for that article arrived at at my home on August the 20th, 1993. And I had to respond to it. That would have taken me another day or two. Uh, it may have been done by mail. I may have faxed it, but it doesn't look like a fax. So from August the 20th, the article was printed and in at my hand on September the 6th. So 16 days from, Peter, we want the article, to 360,000 copies of it and in all the other magazines around the world, etc. Uh, mm-hmm. It was a weekly and it was incredibly influential, which of course leads to the next one. You mm-hmm. see what computer world sees Y2K. Now journalism would say, okay, or oh, we're gonna report on this. In other words, the impartial reporter, but you also have all this influence. So the question is, <coughs> do you, you see it as something to report? or did some point did it change and you wanted to get your spoke in as well, that you were going to get behind Y2K as something we needed to take care of?
1: Well, that's an interesting question because I think for the, I would say for about 80 to 90 percent of it, um, the way Computer World viewed it, it it was an ongoing story. It was extremely important. It was something that needed to be explored and reported and investigated from every angle. On the influence part of it, there was the fact that it was so diffuse. It wasn't like it was just a problem with Microsoft or just a problem with a particular industry, like just being suffered by retailers. It was it was a worldwide issue. And I'm not sure when I look at the word influence, I, I tend to think of things like, well, would anything we write change someone's would would it change someone's mind on it? Maybe if they had better information than they were getting somewhere else, maybe it would influence that way. But we and when we editorialized about it, um, it was <clears throat> mostly in a position of what, what I guess I would think of as advocacy journalism on the part of the IT executives and the people that were working to solve the problem. And I've always, if there's if there's any bias that I, I would most freely admit to, it's the fact that Computer World was always on the side of the technology people, the ones that were doing the work. Um, we were, essentially, we were the voice of the IT management community. And, um, you know, we've they've, I don't even know what the new motto is. Publications and websites always have you know and um there's a theme essentially to what you're doing and i know for a long time our theme at computer world was the voice of it management and but it um so i i guess i would answer that question as it was most mostly mostly all of the time it was something to report and to to do well to get as much information as possible to make it digestible and understandable it, you, we never kidded ourselves that we were writing to an audience that included CEOs or top business leaders. They would have considered Computer World to be an industry publication and probably in their ignorance would think that we were just biased. Um, but the only bias that we ever really had was on the on behalf of the technology people themselves. And I have been, and this, as I said, this is a bias I freely admit to. I have been a Uh, someone who is impressed by and been a fan of IT leaders and the tough jobs they do for um, well for my entire tech journalism career I just think there are there are so many well there are so many well educated well-meaning really smart people that get go into IT and one of the problems over the years has been they often are the smartest people in the room but they have to be careful that they don't show that too much because there's a certain amount of of fear and intimidation on the part of uh, people that don't understand as much about technology. And, it, you know, it's the, I remember one of our, our CIOs at Computer World at the time was complaining to me once about being in one of the big executive meetings. And he said every time the projector wouldn't work, they would turn to him and they'd say, well, can't you do something about that? And he'd say, no i have no idea why it does not let me call you know the help desk let me get one of our people to come and do it there was always this feeling that you know the tech leaders were some sort of you know they were the math whiz uh in the room and they would treat them like that like a function so you know in terms of influencing i think what we probably what we hope to do most of all was to keep educating people about why this was a real problem, what was being done about it, what companies were spending on it. Uh, when I look at our coverage of it, um, we did a whole series where we took, uh, we it was called the uh, Year 2000 Chronicles, and we followed six different companies for, I think, I think we started it three years before the date change over. It went on for a really long time. Um, My friend Julia King was one of the writers on this, Gary Anthus, uh, Tom Hoffman. There were, we essentially put, I wrote several stories and followed one of the companies too. We put our best writers on it to stay in touch with companies like Merrill Lynch and the Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce and Nabisco uh, they were just three of the ones, and we wrote regular stories about how they were solving this problem. So, and but I don't think of that as an influencing kind of move. That's really just in-depth reporting. Right. Um, so that's that's a very that's a long-winded and complex answer to a question: Were we trying to report on it or influence it? And I, I would just have to say, mostly we were reporting on it, and the influence that we hoped to wield was helping the business world understand a little bit better about the kind of work that was being done by the people in the trenches by the CIOs uh, to fix this problem which honestly wasn't their fault to begin with right but they got they got saddled they got saddled with fixing it and the more they explained about the problem the more I think probably on the business side there everybody's eyes glazed over.
0: <laughs> you're recounting my entire history. <laughs>
1: Am I really? <laughs> oh,
0: absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, the, the story of this is, it is my story. From, from the beginning, it was, you, you, you've got to be kidding me. And then it was, <laughs> you know, how dare you bring this? And then how dare you be responsible? And then for a short, short period of time, uh, hurry up and get it fixed. Yeah.
1: And and that feeling of like, why are we still talking about this? Didn't you people fix it yet? I mean, there was there was a feeling like that because I know when we did um, those six companies that we followed, I mentioned one of them was Nabisco. And we were interviewing on a regular basis the the man who was the um, vice president of enterprise supply chain systems. And when we finally talked with him after we finally got over the date change, and it was the year 2000, and the way he described it, he said it was a big yawn. Everything had been scripted out. We took it step by step. There were virtually no surprises other than we executed faster than we thought we could. And I love that quote because I feel like it is the story of IT leadership, right, in a single quote. It's like we figured out the problem. You know, IT... Uh, it executives are linear thinkers many of them are engineers by training they suss out the problem you know this Nabisco executive pointed out he said the smooth sailing of moving over into the year 2000 was attributed to three years of careful planning and good project management Um, and the fact that the, the, the PR around Y2K didn't exactly land on the side of CIOs and IT leaders that you know again that comes back to the, the problem with communication about this about how the things I think a lot of IT leaders learned out of this whole experience better ways to tell their story and to get business people on their sides um, I know our big hope at the time, and I wrote about this myself a few times, it looks looks foolishly optimistic looking back at it 20 years ago, but the, the hope was that, okay, finally the business leaders would realize how strategic and important, you know, uh, technology and what we were doing with our community, how important that was to business. But at the time that this was going on, com- computers and technology was still seen as, you know, it was a back office function and it was not a front office strategy. And uh, oh, how that has changed, right? When we think about today and the incredible salvation that the technology leadership has essentially brought to companies as we're dealing with this global pandemic, I think everybody's got the religion now. But uh, trying, trying to convince them to believe it then, uh, that, was, that was more of an uphill climb. <laughs> so. I
0: th- a number of people have sort of pointed out that Y2K was a coming of age for the business leaders. Up until then, IT was, like you said, a back room function that they didn't really understand how much they depended upon y2k sorry how much they depended upon computer systems long comes y2k and all of a sudden there it's being pushed into their face you know you have no choice but to take care of this here's why and that was a long discussion that we had to have with the business people
1: Well, and here's why something that you didn't really know about, and once you heard it explained to you, it seemed pretty damn simple. You know, oh, the date field has got a 19 at the front of it. And, you know, the the whole thing about the the two and the four thing, it it sounded like a geeky little math problem that you could just type in a few commands and it would solve itself. And yet, tell me again why our company has to spend $5 million fixing this, $50 million fixing it. Um, it Yeah. one of the uh, companies we followed throughout this time was union pacific and we were um, regularly interviewing the year 2000 project manager and this was at the time they were a nine billion dollar rail company and we have uh, quoted this gentleman saying that we had nearly five million dollars for contingencies that we didn't need so in the end at least at a lot of companies if they over budgeted for the fix IT was able to give some money back at the end of it. And I think that helped a little bit, mm-hmm. but um, it was not, I can't say that we marched out of, for technology leadership in general, we didn't march out of the Y2K fix with any credit for how much great work was actually done. And i that's always been my biggest frustration with it. Is that the credit that was due to the fix getting done and getting done by an absolutely immovable deadline? Yep. You know, by the time we clicked over into January first, year two thousand, if you didn't have things fixed, you saw. Um, problems from it. I mean, as as you mentioned, there is actually some problems that even turn up now because there were things that were overlooked at the time.
0: Yeah, the problems we had at the beginning of this year, the 2020 problems were all window related. Uh, you know, people were using a 20-year window to kludge the year 2000 problem. And I'll yeah. recap in case someone hasn't heard. It was the New York City Parking Association or whatever they're called, uh, something like 12,000 parking meters just stopped accepting credit cards uh polish cash registers throughout the country just stopped producing the right data and then there were trains in i believe it was hamburg that just stopped working that why a train wouldn't work you know because of a date i have no no explanation for it all but it was identified as a 20-year sliding window uh pointed out that we've had more y2k problems visible y2k problems this year than we had back in the year 2000
1: <laughs> okay Isn't this something- a, a yeah.
0: did you have, sorry go ahead
1: no i was just saying and imagine what we'd have well that was the problem we were all imagining how bad it could get and the warnings started coming out i mean with you know you you pretty much started it in the early 90s with things you were writing about it was kind of like everybody was banging their shoe on the desk and saying pay attention to this problem and we really need to fix it and businesses very reluctantly responded but there was always that suspicion that it was some sort of a scam <laughs> you know that <laughs> that IT people were just trying to get big boost in their budgets. Um, it's my uh, One of my editor friends at Computer World, um, Rob, um, Rob Mitchell wrote about this. He's now the chief editor at techbeacon.com and someone I absolutely recommend that you talk to as well. And he wrote a series about it. 10 years after it was it was a 2009 dated series where he looked back at it and the three parts it was called y2k the crazy and then there was y2k the great things that were done and it was kind of the good the bad and the crazy that evolved out of the computer glitch of all time um and it's a it's a wonderful it's a wonderful series you can actually find it online still um and he wrote about whether you know the all the i guess the overblown worries about it um that you know much of it he points out that much of the i t activity leading up to it was drudge work, it was patching systems and upgrading things, and the people that got kind of nutty about it were managers were people further up the chain who you know had a rudimentary understanding of what was involved and it was probably explained to them many times why it was going to cost so much money to fix it um, but it just you know over time everybody went back and they said huh that was a whole big nothing that happened and it was so maddening because the nothing that happened was because of all the work that was done uh, it, it's given me a, a much deeper um, appreciation and understanding of the problem that industries like insurance have when they're trying to sell somebody on you know or or computer security people they're trying to sell an expenditure for something that will probably not happen if you do the right things but if you don't there could be this disaster so here's your insurance against that and it's that it's that imaginary aspect of it about all the things that might go wrong but then there's always the person thinking well but it might not you know yep. but but who wanted to gamble on that i one of the stories i saw about like all the wall street firms we interviewed a lot of the executives that we had talked to, you know, we made many fast friends over those few years before the date change. And when we went back and talked to them, especially CIOs of the Wall Street firms, they didn't have a single iota of doubt that it was incredibly necessary work and that, yeah, nobody really appreciated how much it saved. But everybody, everybody who understood the technology issues and the problems involved, they know that we dodged a huge bullet but it was convincing other people that didn't hear the gun go off, that didn't watch the bullet go by, at convincing them that it was something that was a heroic effort that really paid off. That, I think, has been, it's been a lifetime frustration uh, for people that were technology in technology leadership positions at the time.
0: Well, <clears> there's <throat> a news article that came out just the other day that mm-hmm. compared Y2K as a hoax to the <laughs> QAnon conspiracies, they're putting them in the same category. Well, I know <laughs> you can Well,
1: <laughs> anyway, well, that's, that's like that's like seeing people, you know, running around right now in the midst of a global pandemic, and they're not wearing their masks because they think that the science, they think the doctors and the scientists and the politicians are all lying to them. So you know it. I think it's probably fortunate that we didn't have the saturation and the level of social media 20 years ago that we have now. That is a
0: conversation for another day. That is something that's been going through my mind for a long time. We couldn't have done Y2K without the Internet, but if we were trying to do it today, I think the noise level would outweigh everything and hide any signal that would be able to put through
1: that's probably that's probably a pretty good observation <laughs> so because instead of calling it a hoax people would you know there would be the conspiracy people that would essentially call it fake news Yeah. And, you know, and Computer World would have been smeared with that. They would have been, oh, Computer World, they're fake news because, you know, we do. We live in a time when politicians can refer to The New York Times as a purveyor of fake news. So, yes, thank God we didn't have the social media then that we have now.
0: Right. Let's move Mm -hmm. on to a, a better time of Y2K. What were you doing on New Year's Eve?
1: I was hanging out in a data center with my dear friend and he's unfortunately the late Dick Hudson he passed away in 2016 but he was the CIO of Global Marine and he invited me down to uh spend the evening in the data center with uh his staff and they were the um essentially their 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 it all went perfectly uh the evening was kind of a big was a was a big non-event um, and but I, it was it was actually rather brave and courageous of uh, Dick my CIO friend there at Global Marine to allow me to come down and spend the time with them because apparently afterwards when his senior management found out, they didn't realize that he was going to have a reporter from Computer World in his data center. And apparently they were there was a little bit of backlash about it. But uh, Dick, Dick survived quite well and, and went on to spend a number of additional years working for Global Marine. Um, it was, you know, it was essentially everything went perfectly. At one point, Dick said that the evening was going to be a big disappointment. Um, for lawyers and journalists, because there was very little to write about and there was nobody to sue afterwards. And he wrote a, um, he said, the lawyers and the journalists are having a really bad day, nothing to write about and no one to sue and uh, i wrote about it in an editorial where i quoted dick because he he says i'm going home to sleep the sleep of the saved and the thankful he was quoting winston churchill Mm -hmm. when we pack up and leave tonight it's all over and it was all the systems were working all the email was working and um global marine was actually it was located um they it was a global company and so in fact they um they were able to tell they, their first live connection that tested successfully came from the the famous Glo, uh, glomar explorer spy ship and it was now, at the time it was a global marine deep water drilling ship in the south atlantic sea off the coast of nigeria and the international headquarters were in the hague in the netherlands and once that the once the guy running those systems gave everybody the two thumbs up and everything was a go, it kind of rolled across the world, um, you know, clicking through just fine. And um, so it was um, an hour or so before it finished rolling through there in the central time zone in Houston. um, I was part of a bunch of executives that gathered to watch the ball drop in New York Times Square. And, um, you know, we were, We were kind of, we were sipping mineral water and toasting each other with it. It was sort of, everybody was tired by that that point. It was just, and I I wrote, you know, I did reports from the data center and it was much the same story at every other data center around the world where the work was done appropriately. And I, I think the industry took the problem seriously enough that you never really heard I mean there were no companies that i and you would probably know this better than much better than i would peter but there were no companies that just shrugged it off as a hoax and didn't do anything so you 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 didn't have companies that collapsed and folded because all of a sudden you know the life's blood of their their um their businesses suddenly didn't work anymore um everybody everybody knuckled down and fixed the problem and they complained about it. They complained about it afterwards. Um, there are some exceptions, <clears> not so much companies.
0: And it's something I have to address. And I, I've, I've addressed it before, the The problem of Italy. You know, the perception at the time was that Italy hadn't done anything. Now, the perception is a little bit wrong, and I'll get into that in a future podcast. But Italy didn't have any problems worth noting. And That fed into it was all a hoax. Now, I'm not going to get into it now. That's a full-hour discussion, but I'll be doing it in the future podcast, and I will be addressing it because we made some mistakes in how we judged what was going on in Italy. Um, A short summary, we created software here. In other words, we have legacy systems in North America. Mm -hmm. Italy didn't really get involved in computers at the legacy system time they came in later and bought packaged software uh-huh which packaged had already been- software is a different problem than legacy pro- software so yes. that's something i have to address
1: package software is something that has been created by another company whereas legacy systems was there was a lot of handcrafted code that was essentially the problem there. Well, and it it was interesting because with my, uh, my friends at Global Marine, they had done and finished all their Y2K testing in 1996 but then they had to go on and retest several of their systems because vendors were reissuing new Y2K compliant versions of the products. And that was something we wrote a couple of stories about that, about the, you know, the things to look for and Y2K compliant. There were some, there were some IT groups that got, you know, probably a little carried away with themselves and wanted to, you know, do things like put stickers on everything. Y2K compliant stickers. It was, you know, there there was a time when it was just very much on on everybody's mind and it was you know and i'm i'm sure there are a whole bunch i try when i think back to the late 90s and i try to think of what were the big issues going into year 2000 from my perspective because i was deep into the journalistic side of the computer industry um it was the biggest story i mean it over and and while we paid you know i think in one of my editorials i said there was never um there was never another story that had so much ink <laughs> back in the days when we were still printing things so much ink spent on explaining it and exploring it investigating it and and all of that and for IT organizations, for the last two to three years of the 90s decade, that was it, was the big black hole that sucked all the IT budget into it. And yeah. we, we wrote stories about, you know, no other projects got done. Uh, and of course, then right after year 2000, pretty much we, we had, everyone stumbled into the dot com boom. And there was all that giddy excitement. And then the big crash after that. Um, I was just interviewing one of our new um, Hall of Famers um, is uh, Phil Armstrong, who is uh, currently the uh, executive vice president and global CIO for um, uh, LifeCo, for Great West LifeCo, the big uh, insurance conglomerate that is based in Toronto. And we did an interview for um, our upcoming one of um, IDG's upcoming virtual events where I've interviewed a couple of CIO 100 Innovation Award winners and also some of our Hall of Fame, this year's Crop of the Hall of Fame. And when Phil and I were talking about uh, the way the relationship between business leadership and and technology leadership has grown and changed over the time, he mentioned, he brought up Y2K and the dot-com boom, but we were talking about it pretty much in the... It, from the viewpoint of here's where things that kind of stomped on the reputation of IT leaders and made business people and strategists business strategists made them suspicious about technology leadership and you know both of us were bemoaning the fact that it, it took so long to kind to get past that yeah. um, that's and I know we're gonna talk a little bit um, more as well about how different it is now that all of the digital transformation work that technology leaders have done have quite literally saved companies uh, now that we're in a pandemic. You know, the I've heard so many stories of CIOs who within a five or even, you know, 10 day period were able to suddenly send multiple tens of thousands of people home and to work at home and the companies didn't miss a beat in Mm -hmm. fact some companies are actually uh, going to come out even a little stronger and we're discovering all kinds of new things about um what the work-life balance and what that does to it and all that sort of
0: thing. So. Yep. Uh, we've been talking about telecommuting for ages. I mean, people have been pushing it for so long. It has so many benefits and mm-hmm. tremendous reluctance of people to even experiment yeah. with it. Well, COVID forced us into it. And lo and behold, a lot of the stuff that we were talking about is mm-hmm. real. Uh, the the yes. very least of which is fewer traffic jams i was just
1: i know i know it's just it 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 has been a life-changing event for everybody in some degree somehow and um what i find and it's it's hard to find really good things to say about a global pandemic Uh, mostly the things to say about them are are regretful about that we have to go through this but when you do find some of the silver linings around it, it it is an it's amazing what a mental leap people have done and and by people i'm actually thinking of the business leaders and the ceos who maybe if they were around through the y2k event were still just a tiny bit distrustful of you know how good is it how how much can we really rely on our technology systems And, uh, you know, look at it now. I've I've heard so many CIOs talk about their CEOs coming to them just astonished at how how beautifully they turned on the dime, how this central nervous system that IT systems have become at their companies, how well it all worked. And I mean, they're, they're so relieved and grateful. And it makes me roll my eyes just a little bit, because, but, but as, as I already mentioned, I'm so biased on the side of the IT leadership. I, I really think these are oftentimes the smartest and most forward-thinking people in the C-suite. And it is very gratifying to see CIOs and other technology leaders getting the kind of credit I've always felt they deserved.
0: You've mentioned, uh, you know, your thoughts of the, the non-event, and, you know, we've well covered that. What were the readers saying after January the 1st, 2000? I'm sure you got letters to the editor. Do you remember the tone?
1: Um, it's hard to remember the very specific tone. I tended to... Letters to the editor, I, I if I had to, I'd be guessing, Peter, but I think most of the letters... Were probably, I would say, probably the majority of them were in in sort of the vein of saying, "What a shame that that the business world doesn't realize what we accomplished here." But in terms of it continuing to be an event for IT staffs everywhere, I think everybody scattered to other projects. I don't think it was, um, you know, we. Our coverage, of course, tapered off pretty dramatically after we moved uh, into year 2000. We did an epilogue where we had been following those six companies for two to three years, and we went back and did a last check-in with them. But the only other, if if you want to see a great history of coverage of this issue, if you go to computerworld.com and just type in Y2K in the search box, you'll find over 1,200 stories. And that's, that's a lot even now. I mean, you might find millions of hits. To it um, if you just Google it but you won't find the specific kind of you know the the leading voice of IT management in the industry covering this issue intensively for oh probably a decade Um, you'll find a lot of the IT viewpoint and the feelings and all that Um, but it was essentially years and years of costly work and it brought some benefits to IT reputation-wise with very few glitches. Um, When when we went back and did that last check-in with the six companies that we've had followed through the year 2000 Chronicles, which was an ongoing series we had. um, Merrill Lynch, we were interviewing. He was, it was Ed Goldberg. He was the executive vice president then. And um, they had committed $520 million to fixing the Y2K problem. And as ed said i can't begin to imagine what would have happened if we didn't commit the resources we did to the problem because it would have affected the brokers and i mean you know how you know, brokers carry on right and uh and they were, you know, and the command center was back in the business of tracking the end of the month and the leap year and end of quarter processing. I mean, there was when you think about all of the jobs that computers and technology are doing in companies, there was a lot of work that essentially flowed into the gap once the problem was really solved. Um I know at the Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce, the uh, total y two k budget there. Um, ended up being about ten million less than they thought they 'd have to spend instead of one hundred and sixty four million it was i guess five million less it was like one hundred uh, and fifty nine million and i 'd mentioned how at nabisco it was kind of a big yawn and they got back to work doing other things um, so other than a looking back you know the a looking back and how did it go and why didn 't we do a better job communicating about it? Probably a lot of technology people. You know ask themselves that question you know why did i'd, I'd say the biggest question they all asked is like why didn't we get the credit we deserved on this
0: yeah. there's a fair um, bit of that
1: There's and again were... my, my journalism bias comes in here in that i think that the communication that was done about the and maybe it was a hopeless problem to try and explain i mean if if you get you know say you get a math major in a room with a marketing major And you've got the math major trying to explain what a really important concept something is to the marketing major who is Probably more of a surface thinker than a than a deep thinker, and I say that understanding that I'm on the side of probably the marketing. You know, journalists are not technology are not technically deep people generally. You know, if we could understand technology and mathematics, we would have majored in computer science, and we probably would have made a lot more money in our careers than going into writing and editing and marketing and PR and that sort of thing. But I think that it can be very difficult to make someone understand a problem that is essentially so theoretical to them. So I think there was a huge amount of relief that the world didn't come to an end. You know, we didn't have a computer apocalypse on January 1st, and then the story became, well, so what are you doing now? You know, it's in a lot of the big joke in journalism is always, you know, you write a great story, and then the next day, your editor says, well, what have you got for me today? So, you know, in terms of, I, and I, I see what you're doing with the slide where Y2K kind of fades away. So it's all a perspective from, you know, many years in the future, looking back at it um, about why why IT didn't get the credit it deserved. It could have been the problem itself was just so annoying to business. It could have been a communications issue. Um, you know, it, it just, it's one of those, you um, It's one of those great unknowables, I think, about Y2K in general. Um,
0: Yeah. When you have to drag people kicking and screaming to the problem and you solve the problem, they're not going to thank you for dragging them kicking and screaming.
1: And they're not going to thank you for explaining again why it was so important because they're not believing it because they didn't feel it. Yeah. You know, it's like, do you, if... If a year ago we had tried to sell everyone on, say, in the United States, where we're doing a completely wretched job of managing the global pandemic, if we had tried a year ago to sell people on why it was worth increasing everybody's taxes so that we would develop a vaccine against a possible pandemic that could be coming, nobody would go for it. So, and I mean, that may just be it may be that human beings are just when you get right down to it, if they can't see it and poke at it and experience it personally, um, it's really hard for them. It's hard for them to get on board.
0: And we mustn't let anything bad happen either. Remember the, in Italy, mm-hmm. there were the uh, earthquake scientists who were charged yep. for not warning about an earthquake <laughs> and yeah. they were convicted. It was overturned yep. later but they were charged and convicted for not warning people loudly enough. You can't win. (laughs) You can't win.
1: You can't win. And that's why when I look back at some of the editorials I was writing at the time, and, you know, I was celebrating the fact that, you know, finally, finally, the business executives understood how strategic IT was really to their companies. And I was was 20 years too early with that kind of outlook. It was incredible. It looks very nice. It looks very naive and optimistic right now that um, it was all going to be so great because we got over this big hump and all you heard was kind of a big harumph from everybody you get over the hump and you get a harumph and they're like um, so that uh, and the next question you have coming up here what did you take away from Y2K Um, I think I just personally came away with and and this has been a conviction of my own that has increased over the years that the leadership communication and the ability to tell your story and to explain and to bring the business your user base and your business leaders to bring them along and to have them be part of the solution and not you know just pouring money into it that it a lot of it comes down to leadership ability to that customer centricity that we hear about so much uh, more now it, it's it's hard to re, it's hard to relive what it was like 20 years ago when it was largely very much largely a back office function and one of the things that we've done at that we did at computer world, and then when I was the editor- in chief at CIO magazine, um we did state of the cio research for the past thirteen or fourteen years, and we've been tracking um, things like the way business leaders view i t leaders. And there's always been a gap um, between the business leaders thinking, you know technology leaders might think, technology is very strategic and a really important thing, and it's number two on our CEO's list of important issues. But if you were to ask the business leaders, they might put it at number seven. You know, there are always other things, you know, that that whole communication problem with talking in the language of the business and getting them on board with the story of how much technology was really doing for their their ability to sell, their ability to focus on customers, um, the way that they respond to the market, the things that technology could do in terms of growth and productivity. It's always been uh, up to the technology leaders to prove that to yep. the business leaders. And so that's that's why the leadership branding and communication um, of making sure that CIOs are essentially connecting with the opportunities to do that and to do more of that, that has become something thats that's been my North Star, I guess, as someone who has been involved um, and involved with and interviewing technology leaders for much of the past 20 plus years. And it's just, uh, on the one hand, it's it's very gratifying to see all the credit that everyone is getting now, that remote working and all the abilities that um, IT leaders have provided with digital transformation and the kind of changes that have been made in systems. And I, I don't mean to you know um, give damn with faint praise how much the technology itself has changed and all of those advances. I think that theoretically business leaders have always understood how important technology could be and would be to their strategy going forward. But I think it took a very long time for them to see that reality in action. And it's probably, considering that IT was such a back office function 20 years ago, it was, it's probably an unfair expectation to have gotten the credit for IT that, you know, inside the industry, we thought that IT deserved. Um, From a business perspective, you would, you'd never convince, you'd never convince anybody of that. And that's kind of, that's really just the reality of the human experience, I think. You know, that, what have you done for me lately? The, you know, can you show me that? Can you prove that? Um, And how do you prove that you've avoided a great big negative? you know there there has to be a certain level of trust and communication between the people that are involved with that and that trust and communication between technology and business leaders that has been developing and advancing a great deal over the last 20 years but it's because there were had to be a lot of proof points along the way um for technologists
0: Yeah, it was never a technical issue from my perspective. From the day, from day one when I started to get involved with this, I knew it was a communications issue. It was going to be how do we convince the business people, and it had to be the business people because they were the ones with the purse strings. We couldn't do this on our own, and we had to convince them that because we didn't use four digits, we have to spend $100 million. And that was an uphill battle. yes (laughs)
1: yes here
0: you get to talk now look i always have to say this when i when i ask this of people COVID 19 is not like y2k in its worst scenarios the teotihuacan scenarios the end of the world as we know its scenarios we never contemplated or no one ever contemplated i certainly didn't you know two hundred thousand deaths and it's more than that worldwide So in one way, they're not the same at all. They shouldn't even be compared. However, how we're communicating both of these things do have parallels. What are your thoughts Mm -hmm. on how the media is doing and how the public is responding?
1: it's, It's an interesting question because I've found that Y2K as a topic comes up a lot more Now that once you start, because now when I do my interviews with CIOs, my first question is always, how are you and your team doing? You know, what has happened to your business in those last six months as we've all had to deal with this global pandemic? And as I mentioned with my interview with Phil Armstrong, he was talking about why 2K comes up in the conversation because it's about, it's essentially about dealing with a crisis and what you're able to do. In terms of um, whether there is that trust and that communication between the technology and the business side and um, I think Y2K often comes up as the primary example of when that trust should have been earned but wasn't and then the kind of things that got done over the years to get to that trust point and what we've seen with Covid nineteen and of course we won't get into the whole political and health issue discussions around it because you know you know there are already books being written about that um, but with what we're seeing from a technology leadership standpoint is an enormous daily experience of of proving of showing of benefiting uh, from the strategic use of technology, and the fact that for the last three to five years, companies invested in all the all the things that technology has done, you know, from a technical and scientific standpoint, and all the ways it has has advanced, that is all come to fruition now, and um, there is more. There's more understanding. There's, I think, it's a a visceral, a visceral response to how much benefit everyone can see today right now and their continued ability in a lot of cases to keep their businesses going because they can manage their workforces remotely and they we can communicate so seamlessly and there's probably there's probably as many downsides that we could list, especially when you get into social media and the incredible level of noise that there is in the environment today about everything. Um, but the, it, it's interesting the way Y2K keeps coming up as an example of when technology had a big success that somehow made everybody feel like they, we were let down. Mm -hmm. you know there i think you could probably still find people that would say we didn't need to spend 52 million dollars on that and you know but maybe you'd have to drill down and say well maybe you wouldn't have spent that much if you didn't hire that outside consulting firm that was charging you 300 dollars an hour i you know it 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 all you know everything all depends in the end um but the it's also a it's instructive in a way watching the response to COVID-19 where the scientists and the doctors, the information from them about this this horrible, this evil virus, about how in some quarters, some political and, and even some, you know, some entire nations have set aside the warnings and said, oh, well, doctors, scientists, we don't really need to wear masks. Right. Um, and then had a terrible surge of it. I know one of the, I think it was Sweden, one of the Nordic countries went through that where the doctors and scientists recommended that they do, you know, <clears throat> quarantining and lockdown and masks and everything. And they said, we don't think what happened in say Italy or what's going on in the United States, that's not gonna happen here. And then the, the virus, the virus has outwitted them all. Um <laughs> as someone who has as someone who has great respect for technologists for scientists for doctors you know for for facts right. you know for the right. for what science has told us and what science has proved um i find it amazing that people will discount um the expertise and the expert opinions of the scientists and the doctors and you know in the case of it the cios you know the people that really know a lot about this but <clears throat> that is th- that's very difficult to explain from a human point of view um, it's just you know you get different it it, it as I say it's inexplicable yep. um, so in a lot of ways it, there is you know we we talked about the fact the trust and the communication issues and I think that we're seeing around the COVID-19 a huge lack of trust from big swaths of the population. I, I know that's happening in the United States, and I think it's happened in other countries around the world. And when you have a distrust and a skepticism about what is a real fact and what is, um, you know, like fake news or right. something someone is making up, um, I think it kind of it poisons the environment in terms of uh, of trying to talk about it in any sensible way. And when we look back at Y2K, there was such a distrust that the technology leaders and that, you know, the geeks, you know, the computer engineers and the software experts, that they were somehow trying to benefit themselves and get big influxes of money into their budgets to solve this problem that nobody quite believed. So, you know, that's that's about the only parallel I can really draw between it. Um, I'm I as I said, I find it very, very gratifying from um, a a career kind of standpoint for CIOs and technology leaders, because I think the light has dawned on their CEOs and their boards of directors and talk to any successful company today or even any company that is determined and going to survive through, this tremendous economic downturn that we've gone into they are going to survive and come out on the other end of it because of the technology underpinning that is there and in a lot of cases probably some of those same people that are saving the companies right now they may have been the same people that were on someone's team 20 years ago fixing the y2k problem and getting no credit for it <laughs> so There's still I, I really like yeah I think there there's a lot of a lot of us are still around you know that were involved in Y2K even though I was just on the media and journalism end of it and I think that there is that's why when when I talk with CIOs like uh my friend Phil Armstrong he mentions Y2K when we start talking about trust and believability and communication and the importance of where you have your focus in the business and all that Folks, I, I want
0: to thank Mary Fran so much for coming on board to to give a perspective from the journalism side. I mean IT world depended upon computer world. It really did. If for those of you who never knew the magazine, it would come by once a week, and there were issues, I have a few, that weigh three or four pounds. <laughs> And it came out fast. It was always up to date. The things you were reading were the things that happened almost yesterday. And it was vital to the industry at the time. Mary Fran, thank you very, very much for coming on board. Mary Fran is now the CEO founder of Mary Fran Johnson Media LLC. And she has something to tell us about a podcast series that she's doing. She is host of IDG's CIO Leadership Live. Tell us a little bit about it
1: sure i'm happy to peter but i do want to point out computer world the magazine actually is gone in print but computerworld.com is still a very lively and informative entity so is cio.com i uh am still involved in i write a, a column on board called Boardroom Bound for my friends at CIO.com. And I know many people that are still around at computerworld.com. So I would encourage anyone who's following technology news and news about IT leadership to make sure you're getting any of the, the numerous newsletters that are produced there, um, as a as a as a brand, it was I was so lucky to be to have my first experience with the technology press because I came in out of daily newspapers, and my very first experience was getting to know the industry through the lens of Computer World and its view on the world, and it was it was a wonderful introduction to the technology media uh, itself, and then. <clears throat> After I worked I spent about 15 years at computer world and then later was the editor-in-chief at CIO magazine where I spent uh, nine years as well and I moved eventually into the event business. Uh, we were doing, you know um, 10 or 12 CIO events a year and I've been involved with the CIO 100 innovation awards program I was running that when I was the editor-in-chief at computer world at uh, CIO as well and then about a year ago I um, left to start my own media consultancy and the work that i do now is in many ways similar to what i have done all along which has been to continue communicating with and talking with and interviewing cios and digital leaders and my motto for my company is really connecting cios and digital leaders with opportunity i've always been a huge believer that IT leaders in general do not do a good enough job of branding themselves. Uh, You know, a few years ago, they would all cringe at the idea of having a brand. But in reality, our brand is our reputation in the world. And I concentrate, I work with some private clients. I write a regular column now, Boardroom Bound, for CIO.com, which is all about digital governance and the influence that CIOs can and should be having in the boardroom, both on one side of the boardroom table as part of the CEO's senior leadership team, but also on the other side as future board directors themselves. Uh, In fact, my next column is going to be about why CIOs shouldn't wait for retirement before they start getting into board uh, a pursuing a board seat and then my um, probably my favorite project that I'm still working on uh, twice a month I am the host of IDG's CIO leadership live and it is an hour-long video interview series that is also posted as a podcast so if you google CIO leadership live you will indeed find it on all your favorite podcast platforms and over the last almost three years now I've interviewed more than fifty CIOs in great depth and we talk about everything from from innovation uh, to business strategy to um, how they are staffing up, what they are how they are solving their talent challenges, where they see technology heading um i have always been a very unabashed supporter of cios and of digital leadership in general because i'm just i'm convinced that that they need uh they need to keep getting their story out and so any way that i can help them communicate with business leaders is something i'm always interested in so the um the fundamental uh, i've essentially created my you know my my own media consultancy is really just to continue working for the benefit of chief information officers and IT leaders and throughout the global 2000 and i feel i've had such a very uh, very entertaining and fascinating and wonderful career working in the technology media press and being part of so many CIOs' conversations. And it is just, I feel like Computer World and CIO Magazine have always been essentially the the wind beneath the wings of IT leaders throughout North America and beyond. And it is just, it's always a privilege to continue to get CIO leaders, and CIOs and IT leaders to get them um on stage when we can all get back together in person Uh, i've done a whole lot of stage moderating over the years now these days i'm doing a lot of virtual interviews and um, but the um the most i think the most entertaining and sustaining thing that i'm doing right now is staying in touch with um hundreds and hundreds of chief information officers and i.t leaders throughout the country and it's been uh, absolutely—it was a great privilege to be part of the media empire of Computer World and CIO Magazine, and so that's essentially what I've—I've I've built my consultancy around. Is um, I like to show up and say I—I I love CIOs, and I'm here to help. I'm here to help them communicate, <laughs> and uh, I've really appreciated having the chance to talk to you about all this peter I had to go back and do a bit of research to try and remember what was happening 20 years ago but I do think that there are a lot of very interesting parallels when we think about how far IT leadership has come in those last uh, in the last 20 years and how uh, lucky that I have always been to be just part of that journey and to just be be hanging out with them so thanks so much for having me having me here today
0: Mary Fran, thank you so much for coming on board and helping increase IT—you know—the value of IT involvement in organizations. It is appreciated, folks. This has been one of the interviews from the Y2K and Autobiography podcast series. I've decided to make it available on the podcast itself as well as in the on-demand area. All the other interviews, most of them, are at the www.vimeo.com/on-demand/Y2K. There are a couple more interviews planned. And as I do each of these, I'm pointed in the direction of other people I should be interviewing as well. My email address is pdager, P-D-E-J-A-G-E-R, at technobility.com. And until next time, be good and be safe, and we'll get through this. Take care, guys.